When we fall into sin, we rarely bounce. We shatter. Like Humpty Dumpty after the fall, the pieces are hard to put back together, and the shrapnel of our lives becomes embedded in the lives of those we love, causing long-term damage. What do we do when our world has been broken and shattered by failure? Where do we turn to put the pieces back together again? A number of years ago, a man came to see me in the church office, whom I had not seen in several years. He did not go to our church, nor did he live in the area. He was passing through and looked me up. This friend had been caught up in sexual immorality and controlled by sinful behavior. He told me that he had repented of his sin, returned to the Lord, and found forgiveness in Christ. Although he still struggled with temptation at times, he was working on withstanding the pleasures of sin. He hoped that God could someday use a broken-down sinner like him once again. I tried to encourage him by saying that God has often used broken world people to perform his greatest works. My friend replied with a smile that if that was the case, then God must have something great in store for him because his world was badly broken. The book of Nehemiah is all about rebuilding and restoring a nation that had been shattered by sin and broken by failure. Many people approach the book of Nehemiah from the perspective of Nehemiah, so they focus on leadership principles for restoring ministries. However, if we approach Nehemiah from the perspective of the people, it is a book about the renewal and revival of broken worlds. The people of Israel are rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem, but the same principles that apply to rebuilding a shattered city apply to rebuilding our broken worlds. We will be studying this book to learn the basic spiritual principles that God uses to restore broken people. My friends, there is a beauty in brokenness when you are ready for God to work. If you are listening, haunted by your past, then the book of Nehemiah is for you. Maybe you have sinned greatly in the past, and your sin haunts you in the present. Maybe you were victimized by the sin of others in the past, and the hurt haunts you now. Maybe past failures stalk your present circumstances. Maybe you drifted away from God, and your life fell apart. Now you want to rebuild your broken world. You want to start fresh, experience a new beginning. I want to tell you that no matter what your past has been, God can heal your life if you follow his prescription. God does not erase your past, but he does give you a fresh start. You must start where you are to go where he leads. If your world has been broken, then I know your past haunts you. I know that. Because Nehemiah tells us, first of all, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, that past problems bring regrets. 
past problems bring regrets. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It is November 446 B.C. in the winter palace of Artaxerxes I. He is the king of Persia. One hundred and forty years have gone by since the nation of Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. and the city was ransacked and burned. God had judged the nation because of sin and he sent them into exile. But seventy years later, a group returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple. They began to restore the city, but became discouraged by their broken world. Then, thirteen years before Nehemiah, another group returned to finish the job under Ezra. But opposition arose, and the neighboring countries mounted a political campaign to bring pressure on the government. They wanted to stop the rebuilding, and they succeeded in getting King Artaxerxes to issue a decree that the work on the city of Jerusalem must stop. In fact, Ezra tells us that the work was stopped, quote, by force of arms in Ezra 4.23. The people lost. Evil politics won. The city still lay in ruins. Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye, according to Zechariah, was a garbage dump. It has been 140 years of shame, guilt, fear, and suffering. The walls were still in ruins from the great fire. Nehemiah tells us in verse 3 that the remnant of, peop of the people were in great distress and reproach. The word distress meant mis misery. The word for reproach meant shame or disgrace. This same word is used of Tamar when she was raped by her brother Amnon in 2 Samuel 13.13. 13. Jerusalem had been raped by evil people. The word for shame is used of the shame that comes from adultery, Proverbs 6.33, or the public exposure of nakedness, Isaiah 47.3. Without walls, without gates, the people were open and vulnerable to their enemies. They felt helpless and humiliated. What are the broken walls and burned gates of your past? The people of Israel had suffered 140 years of shame and guilt. Can you imagine how shattered they felt? 
Now remember, my friends, the people alive at this time had nothing to do with the sins of their parents. They were not around when God sent the nation into captivity. They are just trying to survive the day. Do you ever feel helpless and trapped by your circumstances? Are you ever humiliated by your past or haunted by your shame? This is exactly how they felt, too. Notice that Nehemiah weeps and mourns for days on end about the broken world of his people. The word for mourn used here meant to mourn for the dead. It was used of Samuel when he mourned over King Saul, who had sinned so terribly that we are told the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel tells us that he never saw Saul again until the day of his death. He mourned. Nehemiah mourned for his country. He mourned over her past. He mourned for the failures of his parents and the failures of his grandparents. If you have ever been broken by your past and trapped by your circumstances, you have taken the first step on the road to recovery, because until you are broken, you will never look to God for restoration. God does not call us to build new walls until we first weep over the broken walls. It's okay to mourn over the past for a time. Nehemiah will mourn for four to five months. But he knows who to take the past to for healing. He goes to God in prayer. Practicing prayer is the key to overcoming the past. We have a tendency to try and overcome our past by doing. But we can only overcome our past when we begin praying. Peter Drucker, in his book on leadership, says that successful people do first things first. First things first. Well, we must do first things first. What are the first things? Prayer. Prayer is first. We will never overcome our past without making prayer the regular practice of our hearts. It is the first essential. That is why we learn from Nehemiah's example that past problems bring regrets, but secondly, personal prayer brings results. In verses 5 through 11, personal prayer brings results. Real prayer is work. It is the most essential work of the Christian, but it is work. I chuckled when I saw a cartoon which pictured a pastor kneeling in prayer in his office, and a lady enters his office with the words, Oh good, you're not busy. We have such a casual attitude about prayer. It's easy for me to fall into the trap of thinking that I need to do something more than I need to pray about something. Yet if we are going to be effective in rebuilding our lives, our churches, or our nation, it will begin when we get serious about prayer. Chuck Swindoll calls Nehemiah a leader from the knees up. How many churches hire a pastor to pray? 
And how many of us pastors fill up our time so that we can't pray? The book of Nehemiah is more than a book about rebuilding some ancient walls. It is a book about revival. And revival begins with prayer in a family, in a church, or in a nation. Do you care about your nation? Pray. We can learn some great principles about broken world prayers in these verses, in this prayer of Nehemiah. Broken world prayers start with submission in verse 5. They start with submission. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. When we were in Jerusalem a few years ago, we visited the Western Wall, or it's called the Wailing Wall, of the Temple. People stuffed thousands of printed prayers into the crevices of the Wailing Wall each day, hoping that God will hear their cries. They have to clean the prayers out regularly to make room for new prayers in those crevices of the wall. Thirty years ago, the Israeli National Telephone Company set up a fax number for the Wailing Wall. If you want to plant notes to God in the Wailing Wall, you can do it by fax, they said. An employee will take the faxed prayers and place them in the crevices for you, so you don't have to take the time to get to the wall. Well, people treat prayer like some magical formula and then wonder why God doesn't answer them. This must have been how the Jews in Nehemiah's day felt. They wondered if God was even listening. They stood at their ancient wailing wall and looked to heaven for answers only to find nothing year after year after year. They knew the great promises of God written over 300 years earlier by the prophets and wondered why God didn't restore them. And we do the same today. Why doesn't God do something about my problems? This is our typical approach to prayer. Our prayers focus on our immediate problems and petitions, not the greatness of our God. Our prayers are focused on us, not Him. And this is all backwards, my friends. Nehemiah begins with God, not himself. He begins with the creator of this world, not the problems of his world. Nehemiah worships before he requests. Adoration comes before supplication. Our God is not some spiritual pharmacist dispensing prayer pills for whatever ails us. Nehemiah describes him as awesome. The word means dreadful, terrible, or the cause of astonishment and fear. He is the keeper of the covenant, which simply means that God does what he says he will do, always. The word loving kindness is a great Hebrew word meaning covenant loyalty. Nehemiah is saying that our God keeps his promises to those who love him and keep his commandments. He is absolutely loyal to us. You say, well, Dave, that's nice, but what about those who have sinned? 
What if we haven't obeyed him? Then, my friends, start now. These verbs are all present, not past. When we repent and begin to follow the Lord, he is absolutely faithful to keep his word to us. It is that simple. The point is that we start real prayer by acknowledging God and who he is. This is the critical starting point to biblical prayer. We usually start our prayers with our wish lists. We come lumping into the throne room of God, crying for baubles and bangles as if God is some gigantic slot machine in heaven. Real prayer starts with God, not us. It's not because God needs to be told who he is, but because we do. The spiritual therapy of prayer gets our eyes off our past problems and onto the God who has the future solutions. As George Sweeting writes, to pray effectively, we must want what God wants. We must want what God wants. Do you want what God wants or what you want? I like what Jack Hayford said. When you discover your creator is the Lord of all human history, it's easier to believe he can overrule your past and beget a different future. So, my friends, start with submission. And secondly, broken world prayers continue with confession in verses 6 and 7. Broken world prayers continue with confession. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. The God who keeps his word to those who obey him is also the God who keeps his word to those who disobey him. That is why we must continue our prayer with confession. The pattern for prayer in this verse is clear. Start with submission to God, get our eyes on God, then look at ourselves and see our own unworthiness. Confess our sins to the holy God of heaven. You say, well, Dave, I don't have any problem with this part. I'm filled with my own unworthiness, and I can readily confess how awful I am before God. But... When we look more closely at this passage, we see that confession is not beating up on ourselves as if somehow we could pay for our sins by inflicting pain on ourselves. If we're using confession to atone for our sins by making ourselves miserable, we're not really confessing sin. The Hebrew verb used for confession is also used for giving thanks or praising God. The same word means either to confess sin or to praise God, depending on the context. Another form of this word means to throw or cast something. 
The Jews liked this word for confession because it pictured what one does in confession. When they confessed sin or praised God, confessed God, either one, they would throw themselves on the ground before God. When we confess our sins to God, we are throwing ourselves upon his mercy. The form of the Hebrew verb used here was also used to convey the national confession of sin on the Day of Atonement. The priest would take two goats. One was sacrificed to the Lord, but the other was kept alive as the scapegoat. The priest would place his hands on the scapegoat, while another priest confessed the sins of the nation. And then the goat would be sent out into the wilderness, signifying God's removal of the sin. What does this tell us about confession? Real confession is throwing ourselves on God's mercy, not beating ourselves up with our unworthiness. Confession involves faith that God can handle our sins. And it involves recognizing that all sin is first against God, not against others. Notice that Nehemiah confesses, we have sinned against you, God. Confession also involves taking personal responsibility for the sin. Nehemiah says, I and my father's house have sinned. Now, Nehemiah was not even around when the nation went into captivity 140 years earlier. Yet he identifies with the sin of his people, of his fathers. He does more than just identify with them. He knows that whether he committed that particular sin that they did or not, he is a sinner. We are all sinners, so we all can confess our sinfulness to God. Corporate confession starts with the reality that we are all sinners. It's easy to look at others and say they should confess their sins, but healing in a family, in a church, or in a nation begins with taking responsibility for our own sinfulness. Corporate confession is essential for corporate renewal. We can preach against the moral depravity of our country, but until we realize that we are part of the problem, we will never be part of the solution. Confession eliminates the us-versus-them mentality of self-righteous morality. Confession recognizes that we are all sinners. Sin is not just out there. It is in here, in our hearts. And renewal requires personal confession of sin. How should we pray? Broken world prayers start with submission, continue with confession, and persist with promises, verses 8 through 10. Persist with promises. Nehemiah writes, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the, of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, Nehemiah prays. Prayer is reminding God of his word, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. I mean, God knows what he has said. We repeat what he has said to establish the foundation for what we say in prayer. Prayer is taking God at his word and claiming his promises boldly. Nehemiah reminds God of two essential promises in these verses. He says to God, remember your covenant, and then he says, remember your commitment. Our prayers are based on those two promises, God's covenant and God's commitment. God's covenant and God's commitment are the foundation for our prayers. Nehemiah quotes a series of passages related to the Mosaic law to remind God of his promises. Yes, there is judgment for those who sin against God, but there is also restoration for those who return to God, who repent. Both are promises from God to us. Nehemiah stakes his hope on the promises of God. He knows the faithfulness of God to keep his promises, and he grounds his prayer on God's faithfulness both to judge and to restore. My friends, to do this kind of praying, of course, you must know God's word well in order to claim his promises. Then Nehemiah reminds God of his past commitment to the people when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 10 is a quotation from Deuteronomy 9.29. This is the account of Moses' prayer meeting with God. The people of Israel had come to Kadesh Barnea, and God had told them to enter the land, but they refused. They sinned terribly against the Lord, and God was ready to destroy them. But Moses prayed for them. God was going to wipe them out. But Moses reminded God of his promises to build a great nation to honor him. Moses wrestled with God, and God listened and did what Moses asked. Think of it this way. Sometimes God waits for us to wrestle with him in prayer before he does what he planned to do in the first place. God can never deny his own word or go against his own character. Prayer is claiming God's word and God's character as the foundation for our requests. We are grounding our prayers in God's word and God's character. The reality of prayer is that God does what we ask when we want what he wants. God chooses to respond to us when we wrestle with him in prayer. The pioneer missionary Samuel Zwamer said, Prayer is the gymnasium of the soul. Another writer put it this way, In prayer we express a holy discontent with the present and a stubborn unwillingness to leave things as they are. In other words, real prayer 
is like an athletic event. It's not for wimps. We wrestle with God. We tell him that we don't like the way things are. God wants us to engage him in such holy argument, just like Moses and Nehemiah. When you have sinned, and you fear the terror of the Lord, it's no time to be timid. When you have failed and you are living with your broken world, you don't meekly say to God, uh, Excuse me, sir, but could you possibly forgive me and help me out a little here? Any help at all would be appreciated. No. Wrestle boldly with God by claiming his promises of restoration and renewal. It may sound odd, but God wants us to grapple with him over his gracious word. Say it like Nehemiah. Take the promises of God's word and repeat them to God. God, you said, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. God, you said that a broken and contrite heart you will not despise, so I'm claiming your promise, Psalm 51, 17. I want your cleansing forgiveness, Lord. I want to experience your restoring grace in my life, God. Moses wrestled like that with God for 40 days and nights. David wrestled with God like that in prayer, too. Nehemiah wrestled with God for four to five months. Pray like Moses. Pray like David. Pray like Nehemiah, my friends, to experience spiritual renewal. It's no wonder we don't experience revival today when we quit praying after 30 minutes. So here's the paradigm for prayer. Broken world prayers start with submission, continue with confession, persist with promises, and stop with specifics, verse 11. Stop with specifics. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. At last, Nehemiah gets to the point of his prayer. He stops where we start. He knows what he has to do, and he knows he has an audience with the king because of his position as the royal cupbearer. The position of a cupbearer was a highly trusted position because the king must trust him to keep his food from being poisoned and deliver it safely to the king. So he will have an audience with the king at some point, and he prays to God for help to speak to the king. Nehemiah asks God to make him successful before the king. He asks specifically for compassions. The Hebrew word is intense. He is asking that the king of Persia, the greatest ruler in his day, would literally have a brotherly feeling of compassion toward Nehemiah, the servant. His request is specific and clear. 
but it comes only after the other aspects of prayer we have already observed. Only now do we get down to our requests. Rebuilding your broken world prayers, start with submission, continue with confession, persist with promises, and finally stop with specifics. My friend, God wants us to spend time with him, not just zip into his throne room with a fax request, and then out we go again to do what is really important to us in our lives. The kind of prayer that brings results is the kind of prayer that fastens itself to God and fervently focuses on our specific needs. Martin Luther watched his puppy beg for food at the table one day with eyes that never left his master. And then he said, Oh, if I could only pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on the piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. I find it interesting that Nehemiah begins his prayer in verse 5 with, O Lord God of heaven. And he ends his prayer in verse 11 with, This man. King Artaxerxes was the most powerful king in the ancient Near East at this time. Yet he was only this man. He's not even named in the prayer. Just like that puppy, we know who the real master is. We do not place our hope in the President of the United States or any president at any time. These leaders are only men, human. The most powerful dictator in the world is merely this man. God is our hope when our world is broken. First things first means looking to God for the future. Everyone else is just this man or this woman. COVID-19 shook our world these past two years. Lives and livelihoods have been disrupted. Families have watched loved ones get sick and die. Masks and mandates led to partisan fights. Churches struggled with unprecedented divisiveness as Christians argued and insulted one another over vaccines and politics. It has not been our finest hour as Christians in this world. People migrated from one church to another as the Christian world fragmented into many splinters of faith. Church attendance is down, and our witness to the world is weak. It's easy to become discouraged as Christians in this post-pandemic world. What will Christ's church look like in the days ahead? Will we go back to the same old church we were before? Or will God move in fresh ways to restore his people? The church of Jesus Christ needs revival. We need God's spirit to draw us back to the things that matter eternally. For we have become obsessed with the priorities of this world. Sin shatters lives. Broken worlds lead to discouragement. But God is the master of our messes. My friends, 
God rebuilds shattered lives one brick at a time. The starting point is to focus on first things first, and prayer is the first thing of first things. Whatever we have faced in the past, we will find God's healing in prayer. Prayer is the key to overcoming the past.